Good to be with you. Let's go to Acts chapter 21 this morning uh, in your copy of God's Word, Acts chapter 21. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 930. It is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Uh, Following the Lord's Supper today, we will uh, break up into clusters of three or four and pray together for the persecuted in uh, particular. But let's first give ourselves to God's Word, and His Word will equip us to pray for them and also equip us to take similar risks for Christ with them. It is the last leg of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, which you can see on the screen there. Uh, According to Romans 15, Paul is bringing aid to the saints in Jerusalem. The churches have finished their collection. He is heading to uh, Jerusalem to deliver it. At the same time, we know from the book of Acts that it's going to be tough. Uh, He will suffer, and that becomes even more apparent in today's passage. So verse 1, if you want to, I'll read it. You can follow the little path uh, beginning there in Miletus uh, on the screen. But um, verse 1, And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them with, with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word. I thank you for its truthfulness and its trustworthiness and 
pray that it would be used by the Holy Spirit now to transform us and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus. Uh, I ask that it would even help us to pray later as we walk through this text. It would help us to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters worldwide. And we do ask that your will would be done in and through them, and that Christ's name would be exalted among the nations through their testimony. In Jesus' name, amen. So recently my family and I visited Richmond, Virginia, and uh, Rachel's parents took us to the IMB headquarters and then to ILC, where uh, a lot of our missionaries received their, their training Uh, There's a special wall in one building with names of those who died during their missionary service. And one name was Karen Watson. The Lord saved Karen after severe grief as a teen. Uh, One book says her fiancé, her father, and her grandmother all died within a two-year period. And her pain had driven her into the arms of Jesus. She was a detention officer at the local sheriff's Office, and also uh, took uh, several short-term mission trips with her church. And these trips helped Karen discern that she wanted to be a missionary. Her heart for the nations and her training and security actually uniquely equipped her to help the IMB with relief efforts among refugees. Uh, She went first to Jordan... Uh, then was reassigned to Iraq. And get this, she left for Iraq in March of 2003, which is the same month there was a U.S.-led coalition to invade Iraq. And you likely remember the the awful reports as well as the casualties. Uh, Yet Karen took the risk in this war-torn country and carried Jesus' name among the refugees there. Uh, Months later, on March 15, 2004, Karen traveled to Mosul with a team uh, to install a water purification system, uh, but she never made it. Iraqi militants attacked the caravan and murdered her and several others. Karen knew the risk involved, and she still went to spread Jesus' name among refugees. She knew the risk because posted on the wall I mentioned earlier uh, is a letter she left for her pastors to read in the event of her death. And there's a picture of it. Um, At the bottom it says, uh, sorry I ran out of printer paper. So she she has a little note of why she hand wrote it. But uh, I wanted to read you some of this uh, letter. It says, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger... You should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward... His glory, my reward. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. The missionary heart 
care more than some think is wise, risk more than some think is safe, dream more than some think is practical, expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. I love both of you and my church family in His care, Karen. So I read that letter for two reasons. One, it fits our emphasis today on praying for the persecuted church. Uh, Two, it shows that the grace to obey Jesus in the face of suffering wasn't limited to men like the Apostle Paul. The grace needed to risk everything for Jesus' name is sufficient for all of us as well. In our passage, Paul is ready to die in Jerusalem for Jesus' name. He knows the risks beforehand. The Holy Spirit even confirms what will happen through prophecy. And still, he chooses to obey the Lord's will. Now, later we'll focus on several truths that actually prepared Paul for this risky work. Truths that can prepare us to take similar risks. But before we get there, let's, let's walk through our passage. I want you to notice first the, the, the church's affection for Paul. The church's affection for Paul. In chapter 20, verse 37... They weep, they embrace, they kiss Paul before he leaves. They won't see him again. And then verse 1 says, When we had parted from them, which is an okay translation, but the NIV actually brings out the meaning more clearly. When we had torn ourselves away from them. It's not an easy departure. It's like tearing apart a wood joint that's been glued. Both sides come, come with it when you, when you rip it apart. They love Paul and care about him immensely. Also in verses 4 and verse 12, you see the affection appear again. Where they, they don't want Paul to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. and So they weep over him and they try to persuade him otherwise. The New Testament encourages us to love one another with with brotherly affection. And we see that kind of affection here. It's good to cultivate affection for one another that runs deep. At the same time, we see here that affection alone isn't the determining factor in whether someone stays put or avoids persecution. The church has to consider other factors as well and pray about the mission of Christ and what God's Word says. Our shared affection to see Jesus glorified among the nations will mean at times saying goodbye to those whom we've grown to love very dearly. But if it hurts to say goodbye, then you're doing something right. We're cultivating the right affections for one another. But next, notice the uh, remarkable unity produced by the gospel. The remarkable unity produced by the gospel. Narrators often repeat things to to give us little nods to, to go back and read earlier in the story. 
And when we do, we find so much more than if we hadn't. Luke gives us a little nod in verse 8 as he reintroduces Philip. He says, We came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Now that agrees, uh, this, this reference to Caesarea agrees with chapter 8, verse 49, where Philip, he preaches uh, the gospel to a bunch of towns until he came to Caesarea. He's apparently still there, uh, as Paul's been going about his work. But why point out again that he's one of the seven? We already know that. Well, it helps us recall chapters 6 to 8 as a whole, uh, and... You know, before he met Jesus, what we get in chapter 6, before he, before he met Jesus, Paul oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen, who was with Philip among the seven. And then Paul ravaged the church, scattering Philip into Samaria. That's chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. In other words, at one time, Paul helped murder one of Philip's closest friends in ministry, and then he ran Philip out of town with violent opposition. And now he's spending the night with Philip. Like, how in the world does that happen? That's like somebody from ISIS murdering your best friend, running you out of town, and then showing up years later as a Christian for a sleepover. And now you've got four daughters. Now, after Paul was saved, he had visited Caesarea twice before. It's likely he gained Philip's trust as he's visiting. But even then, the gospel makes those once enemies now one in Christ and one in heart to serve Christ. In his book, Love in Hard Places, D.A. Carson writes uh, that ideally... The church isn't composed of natural friends, but natural enemies. What binds us together isn't common education, race, income, levels, uh, politics, nationality, accents, jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance... In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they've all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. End quote. Such a truth we find playing out here with, with Philip opening his house to Paul for many days so that Paul and his team might be helped on their way. Let's pray for the gospel to keep producing that kind of unity here among us. Let's recognize that apart from Christ, we too are a band of natural enemies. And if we forget Christ in our relationships, we will remain enemies. But the more we learn Christ, the more we put on Christ, the more we walk in Christ's love, the more we recognize what we share in Christ, like we will do this morning at this table, 
the more we'll choose to love one another for Jesus' sake. Notice also the prophecy spoken by the Spirit. The prophecy spoken by the Spirit. Implicitly, prophecy appears in verse 4. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Explicitly, it appears in verse 9. Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And then again in verses 10 and 11 with Agabus, it says a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now there's a few things we should say here. To begin, prophecy shouldn't surprise us. Acts chapter 2 sets the trajectory for the book as a whole and really for the entire age stretching from Jesus's, uh, uh, between Jesus' death and, and Jesus' uh, coming again. But it says there in chapter 2, verse 17, In these last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters. So there's a reason he... Notice uh, that Philip's daughters don't say anything. Why, why else does Luke include it here? Philip's daughters. Because he's reaching back and saying, yeah, this was for both the male servants and female servants upon whom God would pour out his spirit. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters. So think Philip's daughters shall prophesy. That's the promise. And then God actually pours out his spirit as a result of Jesus' resurrection and his people prophesy. Now that doesn't mean every Christian prophesies like Philip's daughters do and Agabus does. uh, Though Paul assumes some will in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. But in Acts, we also see instruction, guidance, insight, wisdom to defend the gospel, encouragement, spontaneous praise, preaching, teaching, evangelism. This spirit of prophecy produces other kinds of verbal ministries in the church, each having their own place and order for the good of the church and the mission. But here, the spirit gives specific insight concerning Paul's future. It's a direct prophecy. It's from a trustworthy prophet, too, as as we observed in chapter 11, verse 28, that his prophecy about the famine uh, in Jerusalem came true. The church has grounds, then, to discern a true prophet from a false prophet. Moreover, when Paul uh, later on recounts his trials in in chapter 28, verse 17, he uses the same words Agabus uses here to describe what happened to him. That's not as clear from chapter 21, and it leads some to say that Agabus just got it wrong. But a closer reading shows he gets it right. So we're dealing with a trustworthy prophet here. And still, we encounter some difficulty, don't we? Like whether the Spirit contradicts himself. Uh, Look at chapter 19, verse 21. 
It says there, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Then look at chapter 20, verse 22. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He's constrained by the Spirit. But verse 4 of chapter 21 says, through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Well, is the Spirit telling the church opposing things? We can't draw that conclusion without calling God a liar. And besides that, uh, chapter 20, verse 23, and the account with Agabus clarify how to take verse 4. Okay. Uh, Look at chapter 20 again. Verse 22 and 23. It says, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So the Spirit has been telling Paul in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await you. And then that's exactly what Uh, Agabus does in the spirit in verse 11 of chapter 21. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So we're getting a very tangible example of what the spirit has been doing in every city for Paul. In other words, the spirit's testimony of Paul's suffering remains consistent throughout what's inconsistent is the inference the church draws from the prophecy. Okay, so in verse 12, they urge Paul not to go, which is the same inference they draw in verse 4. So I think verses uh, 10 to 12 are giving us an expanded version of what's going on in verse 4 in the other city. So when it says in verse 4, they were telling Paul not to go through the Spirit or by means of the Spirit. The the Spirit himself wasn't discouraging Paul from going. Rather, the church was discouraging Paul from going based on what the Spirit revealed about Paul's suffering. So let's summarize a, a bit. The Holy Spirit will always speak the truth and will never contradict himself. The church must discern true prophecy from false prophecy. And in this case, we're dealing with, a, with true prophecy from a trustworthy prophet. Yet, even where true prophecy exists, wrong inferences can be drawn as the church is doing here. For Paul, suffering doesn't mean he shouldn't go. On one occasion, that was the case shortly after Paul was converted, and Paul explains that in chapter 22, verse 18. But here, the Spirit of Jesus constrains Paul to go with the awareness of the suffering. Only then, after Paul's persistence and them wrestling with the appropriate inference to draw from the prophecy, only then do they agree on the right inference. Only then do they agree this must be the Lord's will for him to go. 
Let the will of the Lord be done, they say. You you can hear the prayer of Jesus now being echoed by the church, right? Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. The church rests themselves in the Lord's will, which becomes clear as they're wrestling through what does this inference mean? They rest themselves in the Lord's will even when wishing that Paul won't suffer in Jerusalem. And we need to find our rest there too. God knows what He's doing. Let the will of the Lord be done. Now by making this decision in the Spirit, in the face of suffering, Paul follows in Jesus' footsteps laid out in the Gospels. Think about this. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and was directed by the Spirit. Jesus eventually sets His face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was challenged by the disciples when He spoke of His sufferings by the words of the prophets. Jesus, knowing those sufferings, still chose them to bless the people. And Paul is doing likewise. He's constrained by the Spirit. He sets his face to Jerusalem. When others learn about the risks involved, they discourage him from going. But Paul, like Jesus, stays the course through suffering to bless others. So when we're watching the life of Paul play out, what we're watching is Christ in Paul playing out. That's not to say that Paul's sufferings are redemptive like Jesus's, but it is to say that we can see Jesus in the way Paul chooses suffering when the path of obedience calls for it. Which leads to one other thing about this passage I want to point out before we get to take the supper and pray for the persecuted. Notice Paul's readiness to die for Jesus' name. Paul's readiness to die for Jesus' name. Uh, Verse 13, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's how Paul is thinking about this. That's how Karen Watson thought about this. She knew the risk beforehand and she still chose it for Jesus' sake. Remember her words? To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. How does someone say this? How does Paul say he's, he's ready even to die for Jesus' name? Acts 21 doesn't tell us. But Paul's words elsewhere give numerous answers. Several great truths prepare Paul to die for Jesus' name. And they're truths that can prepare us when we're when we're called to suffer. These are truths we can also pray for the persecuted in in just a minute. So just briefly, I'm going to give you uh, seven. Paul knows that Jesus is more precious than life in this world. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, If only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Nothing compares to the worth of knowing and following Jesus for Paul. Paul can give his life because Jesus is more precious to gain. Also, Paul lives with the assurance that death won't distance him from Christ. Rather, at death, he gains even deeper fellowship with Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 and 23. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So it's gain, and it's far better. The Christian's bond with Jesus is so strong that not even death can break it. Even more, death is gain. Now, death is not the end end, right? But it's still gain. We gain further intimacy with Jesus. And so he goes on to to make the point in chapter 1 that we honor Jesus in our bodies, in our physical bodies, when we use them to serve him in life and lay them down in death to gain more of him. Another truth that enables Paul to die for Jesus' name, death can't separate us from God's love. Death can't separate us from God's love. This is Romans 8, verse 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers... Did you hear it? I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and the love of God there is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's love for you is more powerful than anything else that would attempt to separate you from Him. And that's good news. The separation can't happen at all if God loves you and has you and wants you in His presence. A fourth one is the hope of resurrection. The hope of bodily resurrection. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, That I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible... I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body 
by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Death is powerful, and it has a powerful grip. Our beloved ones aren't coming out of the graves when we want them to so badly. But there is one who has the power over death, and that is Jesus. And if he tells the grave, release that body, and I'm going to make it into a new body like mine, the grave grave says, yes, sir, and they come out. If it's called for, Paul is ready to die for Jesus' name because he's confident that Jesus will give him a body like his glorious body. Paul also knows God's grace is sufficient in our weaknesses. God's grace is sufficient in our weaknesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 to 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Now, by weaknesses, Paul doesn't mean sin, and he doesn't mean imperfections. He means the circumstances that often often expose us as weak people. So early in the chapter, it was his thorn in the flesh, exposing him as a weak person. Uh, Here, it's insult, hardship, persecution, calamity. So things happening to us outside of our control in the path of obedience. And he gladly boasts in these weaknesses because his life then becomes a showcase of God's grace and power. That is in fact sufficient. So when we cling to Jesus through weakness, the world won't say, oh, you're a strong person. They can only say, Your God is great. His power is strong. Look at her seeing Jesus' name through pain. Another truth. Our afflictions fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Our afflictions fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now what could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? If his death is truly a saving death... And there's nothing lacking in what he achieved for sinners, then then what does Paul mean? Well, what's lacking is the visible presentation of Christ's afflictions to others. That's what's lacking. God intends for the visible presentation of Christ's afflictions to be filled up through 
the afflictions of His people. And Paul can say, Paul, Paul can say yes to going to Jerusalem because he knows that if suffering and death comes, Jesus is going to be seen in him. I'll give you one more. Paul knows that by giving himself over to death for Jesus' sake, he will bring life to others. He will bring life to others. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to 2, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10, 10 to 12. He says, We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. He's talking about his physical body as he's suffering from town to town. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And it's that last statement there where... We see we bring life to others. Death is at work in us, but life in you. It's the gospel paradox. Jesus died in our place to bring us life with God. The same happens with Christ's people. We die daily in order to bring others life with God. It's great truths like these that give Paul the willingness to die for Jesus' name. It's great truths like these that keep Paul singing in prison. At the same time, accepting a bare truth isn't the same as living it. To live this truth, we need God's help. And our persecuted brothers and sisters need God's help. And so I want to eat the supper together here and then... As you do, reflect on these truths and then we'll pray for the persecuted church together. Wes.